Take your Bible this morning, and we'll turn to John chapter 10. I just really appreciated what Shay prayed in his prayer. We're really not here to tickle ears. In fact, uh, in, that's the furthest thing from our mind, to tickle ears, nor am I here to give a bunch of practical tidbits. In fact, I think I've shared with you, I do have a goal when I preach, and my goal when I preach is to teach the most mature. And so when you come on the Lord's Day, we open God's Word if you're visiting today and we're back in John's Gospel. That is our goal. Our goal is to look at the truths of Scripture, to take you into the deep truths of Scripture, to the profound truths of Scripture. It's probably the same reason why, John Paul, this morning you said you didn't want to give six practical tips on prayer, because really it's in our understanding of the relationship of God the Father to God the Son, that depth comes out of our prayer. And it is our attention here to turn to the Word of God. So let me read our new section of Scripture. I'll read 22 through 30. It says, At that time, at the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, at 31, the Jews picked up to stones again to stone him. What a tremendous section of Scripture, even thinking of that statement there in 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What great promises that we do have of the assurance of Christ. I remember even my, my father-in-law who came to Christ probably in his late 30s, spent most of his early years growing up in a, in a Nazarene church where he would walk the aisle and pray the prayer every single Sunday at the church. And I said, well, why did you do that? He said, well, I did that because I lost my salvation Monday through Saturday. And so as he got to the Lord's house on Sunday, he wanted to renew his heart, so he went forward every week. But the truth is, here in the Scripture, Jesus is the one, verse 28, who gives eternal life. And here's the promise, they'll never perish, and no one's going to snatch them out of Christ's hand. No one's going to snatch them out of his Father's hand. Our salvation is secure. Now, as we come to John chapter 10, it's amazing that we're about the halfway point in this gospel. We find ourselves at 10.22 down to 42, 21 chapters. We're roughly halfway. What's unique here is we get to this last section from 22 to 42. It is the last public teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel of John before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. It's the last statement that he's going to make publicly regarding himself. So as you step into John chapter 10, 
we're about three months away from the crucifixion. In fact, what's interesting about the Gospel of John is that the last half of the Gospel of John is is devoted to the scenes that take place actually in the last week of his life. In fact, when you begin to look at John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, it's devoted to one night in the upper room discourse. Now, we've been saying all along that the purpose of John's gospel is to declare the deity of Christ for this purpose that we might believe. In fact, he's so crystal clear in John 20, 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, as we walk into John chapter 10, it is one of the clearest statements of his deity in all of the scripture. In fact, John's been repeatedly showing us his deity. Look back to John chapter 1 just for a moment. Let me just take you just through this and remind you of the declaration of his person. You remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. It opens with a declaration that He is God in the flesh. It says in verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father who's full of grace and truth. Then you begin to look at the testimonies of Scripture. Do you remember in chapter 1, in verse 34, John the Baptist said this, And I have seen him and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And so that was the testimony of John. Then in John chapter 1 was the testimony of the disciples. Look at John 1 in verse 49. Nathanael said and answered him there, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And he goes on through through his gospel. Look at John chapter 4. Do you remember there when he was talking to the woman at the well? Here's the testimony of the woman. The woman said to him in 425, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am He. He is ever revealing Himself. In fact, look at John chapter 5, in verse 17 and 18. In 5.17, He said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. In fact, they, he, they knew He was giving Himself the essence of God the Father in terms of His person. Because look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So over and over, the testimony of the Apostle John in this gospel is the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, stated by John the Baptist, stated by the disciples, stated by Christ himself. Look over in John chapter 8. In verse 58, you remember when we got there, that wonderful section, that wonderful statement. In 858, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and then he gave that phrase, I am. In other words, that name of God in the Old Testament 
when God told Moses, you tell them that I am sent you. Now in the New Testament, Jesus declares, I am. And again, the Jews knew who that statement was about. Look at verse 59 of chapter 8. They picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In fact, look over at John chapter 9. You remember when he healed the blind man, and it said there he heard, Jesus heard in 935, that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And I love verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. But all of this comes to really a crescendo in chapter 10. In fact, look at chapter 10 in verse 30. Jesus declared there, I and the Father are one. In other words, he claimed oneness with the Father. And the oneness that Jesus is claiming here is not oneness in purpose. It is not oneness in mission. It is not oneness in theological agreement, though those would be true. The oneness here is the oneness in nature, oneness in essence, oneness in being. In other words, he is one in essence and being with God the Father. In fact, they knew what he was saying. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. They tried to kill him for the fourth time. Glance down in verse 38. He says, but if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, he's talking about the miracles, that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's clear here. They did seek to arrest him. They sought to stone him to death. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, look back at 1032. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning, going to stone me? And the Jews answered, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself it says, out to be God. And so here, John chapter 10 is the focal point of Jesus' self-revelation of his identity with the Father. And it is all really centered on his claim to the title Son of God. Look at chapter 10 in verse 36. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said... I am the Son of God. So John has been crystal clear at his, to his purpose. And so we, we come to this chapter, and as we approach our text, we'll be looking at this week and the weeks to come in John chapter 10, verses 22, all the way to the end of the chapter, which is in verse 42. And in this narrative here are five sequences that really reveal the oneness. It reveals the unity between the Father and the Son. And by doing so, it reveals the deity of Christ. And he did that so that we might believe. So let me take you through these five sequences, okay? And we'll just use a little outline and they'll all start with the letter T, okay? But let's look first at the trap is set. 
the trap is set. Look at the context here in verse 22. It says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it says it was winter. Now, as you step into this statement, he usually gives you a transition statement there. Verse 22, at the time, it was the feast of dedication. Now, he's been away here, as we get to this point, for about two months from that previous section that we were looking at. The Feast of Tabernacles, running from about chapter 7 uh, all the way through chapter 10, 21, kind of came to a close, and now we find ourselves in verse 22. At that time, it's the Feast of Dedication. Two months has transpired, and uh, where was he in those two months? We simply don't know. There's lots of speculation where he was. But we do know this, according to the text, he's back in Jerusalem and he's here for the feast. Now, if you look down in verse 22, you'll note that again. It says it's the feast of dedication. Let me set the context for you here. It's the feast of dedication. They also call that the feast of lights. Sometimes the Jewish people would even refer to this as the festival of lights. But very well, here in the ESV, it's the Feast of Dedication. Jewish people, if you know Jewish people, celebrate the Jewish Feast of Dedication today. It's what they call, what? Hanukkah. And so when you have somebody who's Jewish today, who's celebrating Hanukkah, usually in the month of December, they're lighting the candles and so forth, they are celebrating this right here, in 22. It is an eight-day celebration of the rededication of the temple in 164 BC. And at this feast, it was a joyful feast. It was marked by lights. It would be marked certainly in the temple. But what made this feast somewhat unique for Jewish homes is that you could partake of this in your own home, and they used it as a time of family reunion. I suppose in some ways it would be like our Christmas season. But for them, it was Hanukkah. Now, you might ask the question this morning, what happened that necessitated the temple being rededicated in 164 BC? What are they celebrating? Well, this is a very fascinating piece of Jewish history. A historian said, and it's true, that you're not going to find this feast in the Old Testament. You can go back in the Old Testament, but you're not going to find the Feast of Dedication. And the reason is, is it's not there. This is not a biblical tradition that is held today because it is a historical tradition that predates actually the New Testament. Beloved, you remember that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between those time frames, there was about a 400-year period. And we refer to that time as the intertestamental period. Some people call those 400 years the silent years. In other words, the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, goes silent. And then there is no prophecy or revelation until John the Baptist shows up and the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah about John 
And there you have the story of Christ. But in the middle of these testaments, okay, uh, you have these 400 silent years. And they were difficult, difficult years for the Jewish people. In fact, you remember that Israel rejected God and consequently they were judged. We know that from the Old Testament. But here in these silent years, it reached a tipping point around 170 years before Christ. In fact, in 175 to 164 BC, there was a very powerful man that came on the scene. And he was a Syrian monarch. And because Israel at that time was occupied by that country, and his name was Antiochus. And believe me, he was a crazy man. In fact, Antiochus called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which means, literally, Antiochus the Supreme One, or Antiochus the Manifest One. And he was crazy, and people thought he was crazy, so they changed that other people, one letter of his name, and they called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means madman. And that's what he was. So you got this time in the silent year, 175 to 164 BC. This region was occupied by this evil leader named Antiochus. And what he did, here was his strategy. He defeated the surrounding nations through military conquest. And then he sought to assimilate them into his kingdom by adopting them into Hellenistic culture. And if he could get the conquered nations to speak the Greek language, to wear Greek clothing, to adopt Greek philosophy, to worship Greek gods, then he could assimilate them into his empire. In fact, Antiochus initially had success in Hellenizing the Jewish people. Some non-religious Jews entered into a covenant with him and they simply capitulated to his commands. But sadly, that would come to an end because in 167 BC, he slaughtered 80,000 Jewish men and then he sold their wives and children into slavery. And what this man sought to do was completely obliterate the Jewish religion. In fact, if you look back in the history at this time, they were forbidden from reading the Old Testament. They took the copies of the Old Testament and destroyed them. They required the Jewish people to make sacrifices to foreign gods. They forbid their children and the Jewish people to to keep the Sabbath. They were to not circumcise their children, and those who did were crucified. He was such a wicked man that I can't even express from the pulpit what he did. But he slaughtered people, he murdered people, he crucified people. One mother who had seven sons defied Antiochus' law. And so Antiochus cut the tongues out of the boy's mouth. And then he fried the boys to death one at a time on a flat iron. Then he murdered their mother. This was a wicked, vile man. And then to top it all off, Antiochus went into the Jewish temple. He erected an altar to Zeus 
in the temple. And then to think of it, if you're Jewish, he offered a swine on the altar. He then took the blood and sprayed it all over the temple. And this unholy act in the temple was called, do some of you remember this? The abomination of what? Desolation. You've heard that phrase before. That's what this wicked man did. Now, what's interesting with that term, the abomination of desolation, is the prophet Daniel referred to this man. And he referred to this key event back in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11. And virtually every Bible teacher identifies that abomination in Daniel 11.31 as the horrible slaughter committed by Antiochus IV, who was the Syrian king who ruled Palestine from 175 to 164. Now, those of you who know something of eschatology, you'll also know that that is a reference to the future Antichrist. There is coming, they believe it was committed here in history by Antiochus. Go back to those verses in the book of Daniel. But that would be but a preview of what he did with the Antichrist who will break the covenant with Israel in the middle of the tribulation. But one historian noted that this savage persecution called the pious Jews to fight back. In other words, if you know something of the Jewish people, they're not going to just lay down on this. And they didn't lay down. As soon as this man got into power, some people launched what is known as guerrilla warfare. And they were led by a priest by the name of Matthias. And then Matthias had a group of sons. And one of his sons was called Judas... Maccabeus, okay? He was also known as the hammer. And under Judas Maccabeus, under his leadership, he was a phenomenal warrior. The Jews retook the temple. They retook Jerusalem. In fact, there's a a historical book called Maccabees, and there was an account of this event in Maccabees, and I'll quote for you. This is a historical record. I, I mentioned to you, it's not a biblical record, right? We don't find this in the Old Testament, but we find it in one of their history books. Maccabees talks about this. Josephus talks of this. I'm quoting. It says, Now Maccabeus and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city, tore down the altars which had been built in the public square by the foreigners, and also destroyed their sacred precincts. They purified the sanctuary, made another altar of sacrifice. Then striking fire out of flint, they offered sacrifices after a lapse of two years. They burned incense. They lighted lamps and set out the bread of presence. And when they had done this, imagine this, they fell prostrate and besought the Lord that they might never again fall into such misfortunes, but that if they should ever sin, they might be disciplined by him with forbearance and not be handed over to blasphemous and barbarous nations. And then it finishes this way. It happened that on the same day on which the sanctuary had been profaned, the purification of the sanctuary took place. That is on the 25th day of the same month, which is called Kislev. What that just means is this. 
When Antiochus committed the abomination of desolation, it took place on the 25th of Kislev, 167 B.C. They would say the Jewish people exactly three years later in 164 on the 25th month of Kislev, Judas Maccabees went in and revolted, overtook Jerusalem and thereby cleansed the temple and rededicated the temple. And beloved, when they did that, there was an eight-day feast that was held. And it continued each year, if you will, from that time. And it is known as Hanukkah today. So if you run into your Jewish friends in the next six weeks, you can tell them the meaning of what that is all about. And I'm sure many of them know that. But this feast of dedication brought hope that God would deliver them again. But I'm sure, beloved John the Apostle, wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast, that he is the messianic hope that they need. Now look back in John to set the table for you. It is at that time, verse 22, what time? The feast of dedication that took place in Jerusalem. And then John adds this. Do you see that at the end of 22? It was winter. Now there's much writing on that little phrase, it was winter, and I don't want to split hairs with you. Some would say he wrote that it was winter for the simple reason it was winter. But there is a whole lot of commentators that said John the Apostle added this because even though it was obviously winter season, it was either November or December between either the Gregorian calendar or the Hebrew calendar, but it was on the 25th day of Keslev. But they say that John might have been on something. It's winter because it's not only winter there in the season, but it's winter in the Jewish people's hearts. It's there a phrase for the spirituality of the condition or the lack of it of the Jewish people. You say, well, what happened? Well, look at the text in verse 23. It is at that dedication that verse 23, he's walking in the temple. He's walking, it says there, in the colonnade of Solomon. That colonnade, the Jewish people believed, if you've been to Israel and I just stopped, Don Clausen, would you like to go one time soon? We want to do this again. But if you can imagine that glorious temple that Solomon built, it was destroyed by the Babylonian people in 586 BC. Virtually the whole temple was destroyed, but there was an eastern wall that remained up. And that's why it's referred to here as the the colonnade of Solomon. It was an eastern wall. It provided protection from the cold winter. Let me see if I got a picture just to put this in your mind. I don't know how well you can see it, but you can see here's the temple. Here's that eastern wall. And you see that section up top there? That is the Solomon's colonnade. Go to the next slide. Just want to give you a picture. If you can see that, here's these. It was a magnificent structure. It was these pillars that would come down. There was a gorgeous roof on the top of it. And often in the winter, to protect the Jewish people at the temple from the harsh winter, they would walk in this colonnade to protect them from the eastern wind. So, beloved, here's the setting. Jesus Christ at the Feast of Dedication is walking in this temple. He's walking in this area. And again, it was about a 45-foot covered walkway. And the rabbis, if you can imagine this, would teach their students from this area. 
And this portico, again, is said to have been the only remnant of the original temple. And because it was so regarded, it is called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico. Portico. Now, now this is just a bit of irony here. Think about this. That while they celebrate the human deliverer from a tyrant, they seek to murder the Savior who was sent to redeem them. That is an amazing context here. So here they are next to the temple at the feast, commemorating the rededication of the temple. And Jesus gives us the clearest teaching about his own identity. So look at verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, they asked him or told him, tell us, Plainly. Now you'll note then as I begin these sequences, I called this first one, the trap is set. And the reason I did is because of the text here. It says in the Bible that they gathered around him. And, and, I, and I think we might just read that and maybe miss that. It is better to say, and it does say the Jews here, that they surrounded the Savior. So he's walking in this colonnade two months after his last episode, and they surround him. They encircle him. In other words, with hostile intent, as the text will show. In fact, in fact Acts 14, it, Paul was there. They, they were trying to encircle Paul to stone him. In fact, maybe these Jewish leaders were still stung from his rebuke in John chapter 10 that they were the thieves and the robbers. And so they kind of surround Jesus Christ. How long, is their question, will you keep us in suspense? In other words, tell us. Tell us here plainly. But I think it's better read as this, literally in the translation at one point. How long will you continue to annoy us, honestly? How long are you going to continue to grieve us? In other words, they are after his demise. They are after his doom, and they want to dispense of him. Now, look at the end of the text there in verse 24. They say, tell us plainly, plainly, as though he hasn't been clear. Would you just look over for one moment at John chapter 18? Later here, actually just a few months from the passage that we are looking at, in John chapter 18, It says in 18, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Watch this. Jesus answered them. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. He said there, I have said nothing in secret. So here he is now in 24. They're saying, Tell us plainly if you're the Messiah. And here, all through John's gospel, his claims to being God, all the times where he stated to be the Son of God. You get to John chapter 5, John chapter 6, John 7, John 8, virtually every single chapter. He said to the Jewish people, I am the bread of life. He said to the Jewish people, I am the light of the world. He said to the Jewish people, I am the door if someone's going to get saved. And then he went on just in the last 
section to say, I am the good shepherd. They knew who he claimed to be. Maybe what you have here, I'm wondering a little bit, is maybe they don't want a figure of speech. Now, if you go back to John chapter 10 and verse 6, remember when he told the account of the good shepherd, it says there, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. And it could be saying, listen, we don't want you to speak in a figure of speech. Tell us, are you the Messiah or not? And so I take you from the trap is set to the second sequence, okay? And the second sequence is the truth he proclaims or the truth proclaimed. And it's in verses 25 through 31. We're not going to make it all there today, but, but the truth is proclaimed. Jesus answered them. He did. Look at verse 25. He answered them, I told you, and you do not, what? Believe. I have told you. I've repeatedly told you. I've told you. He, he says, the apostle John would declare the truth. The disciples declared the truth. John the Baptist declared the truth. The woman at the well, he told her who he was. He told the blind man who he was. He's repeatedly told them, and it says here, they do not believe. He told them, I am the door. He told them, I am the good shepherd, and they don't believe. But amazingly, look what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And so what our Lord is saying here, and it is true today, okay? He not only declared his deity by his words, he proved his deity by his works. In fact, Jesus Christ, the word goes out today, the gospel goes out today. His works bear witness, testify is the word about me. Now, you remember as we started John a few years back, he selected, did John, seven different signs in his gospel that it might lead you to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And some want more than seven. John chose seven. Do you say, did he do more than seven? Oh, he did way more than seven. You say, well, Scott, how do you know that he did more than seven? Well, I just think, no, I'm just kidding. Look over at John 20. I I don't want to tell you what I think. Who cares what I think, right? You say, did he do more than seven? Of course he did more than seven. Because it says this in John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs. 20, 30, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, He did many other ones. In fact, how many more? Well, look at John 21. There's another statement in John 21, in verse 25, the last verse in the Gospel of John. It says, now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Remember this? Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he selects seven, and he did so that you might believe that he was sent from the Father. In fact, go back to John chapter 10 in verse 
32. They picked up stones in 1031 to stone him. And then he said this, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, I've shown you many things. Look down in John chapter 10 in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them in 1038, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you might know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He says the same thing in John 5, 36. He says the same thing in essence in John 14, 11. Jesus said there, believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Listen, beloved, every one of Jesus' miracles, every single sign that he ever did was a claim and a reality, a demonstrable demonstration that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had been sent to earth by his Father. In fact, would you just glance back at John chapter 9? Do you remember there that the man who was healed in 932 said, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. But look back now in John chapter 10. He says it a second time to him. He says in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. Look at verse 26. But you do not believe. And it stop there. It is a very strong statement there in the Greek language. He said, I told you and you do not believe. My works testify and you still do not believe. And, and it's interesting. It's a present tense here. They're not believing As he speaks, and beloved, if I could just say this to you, they are responsible for their unbelief. And everyone today is responsible for the message that I'm preaching. And of course, I have an interest in you who are before me. You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only claimed to be God, he demonstrated that he's God. And here this people, maybe it's winter and maybe it's cold in their heart, they do not believe and they bear the full weight of his judgment. They are spiritually blind to the gospel. You say, well, Scott, why don't they believe? It's a good question. Why don't people believe? I'll show you. Remember, we touched on it. Look back at John 3. I'll show you why people don't believe. It's not a matter of ignorance, okay? It says this in John chapter 3. Do you remember this in verse 16? Obviously, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever or whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now watch this. Whoever believes in him, whoever, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now listen, 
I've shared this with you before, but you knew that I was running from God at the age of 14. I was. <laughs> it sounds stupid, like you can really get away from him, right? And I thought I would run until I wanted to give my life over. But the truth is, beloved, while I was running, I was dead in my trespasses and what? Sins. Here's what the text says. It says there in 18, whoever does not believe is condemned already. You don't need to wait for judgment. You're judged already. Why? Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now this. Now this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because they're what? Their works were evil. Listen, there's some of you sitting in this auditorium right now. And you're here maybe because your parents make you come here. I'm glad you're in the hearing of the word. But listen, the reason people don't put their trust in Christ is not because they don't intellectually understand. It's stated right there. They love the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds, their works were evil. That's why people don't come to Christ. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Listen, if you want to understand why we're hated, we're hated because of the truth of Jesus Christ. The reason that people reject you, the reason that your family rejects you is they're, they're condemned around you. They're condemned because of the message about Jesus Christ. And so they did not believe for the reason that they love their own sin. They did not believe here because they hate the light. They did not believe because they did not repent and believe. They did not believe here in this context because they rejected him. It is the love of sin that produces unbelief. I'll say it again. It is the love of sin that produces unbelief. Suppose that you were driving down a highway. Have you ever driven on this highway? It's Highway 41. You ever get on that one? You're wanting to go to the coast. Suppose you're driving down Highway 41 on your way to the coast. And you're going at 65 miles per hour. But you realize soon that it's not 65 miles an hour. It's what? It's 55 miles an hour. And a highway patrolman stops you. And he says, as you roll down your window... What are you doing? Don't you know that the speed limit is 55? That's a good question, you say. Actually, I was wondering about that. Is it 55 or is it 65? I was going 65. The highway patrolman says, I'll say you were. And sometimes you were going up to 70. Didn't you see the sign back there? The patrolman says, oh, that sign, you answer? Well, actually, I did see it, but that was about a quarter of a mile back. It seems to me that if the state wants drivers to, be, to move along at that speed, it should mark the speed limit more plainly, if you will, or limit the speed limit more plainly. There should be a sign here, for instance, and then there should be another sign in about 100 feet and then another sign in about 100 feet. What does the highway patrolman do? Does he say, 
I am so sorry that I stopped you. I see your point. There should just be more signs. Listen, go on your way. I am sorry that I stopped you. We'll put a dozen new signs up there next week to help you. Will that be okay? Well, of course he wouldn't do that. If you answered a highway patrolman like that, he would have ticketed you so quickly. You would have, know what, you would have not known what had happened there. The fault, beloved, you know this, is not in the signs. The fault is in the driver who does not like to abide by the signs and who prefers to be his own authority. Listen, do not tell God that he has not revealed the truth plainly. Say rather that you do not like the truth that he has revealed and let that truth move you to repentance and faith in the Savior. That's all, that should be what would happen. So they ask him, are you the Christ? And he has spoken plainly. Now my question to you is, have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Not your grandpa, Not your great-grandpa, not your grandma, not your great-grandma. I could switch it positively. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. I told you, and he said a second time, you do not believe. He's told us plainly. But as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John 3, 15, whoever believes in the Lord. Would you look back at John 6 just for a moment? In John chapter 6, there's much we could say here about believing. But in John 6, 29, Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Have you trusted him as of this moment? In fact, look over at John 6, 40. He said there, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 47 of chapter 6, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then he said in 48, I am the bread of life. Have you trusted him for your salvation? Now, would you look back just one moment? Because did you see that I stopped there in verse 26? He says, but you, 1026, do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, you got to come back next week, okay? And we'll, we'll, we'll look at that. 